Hey, church family. So good to be with you again. Hope you're all doing well and staying safe and certainly glad that you have chosen to join us this morning. Just want to remind you that uh, we started outside worship together uh, last week and we will continue doing that as well again today and uh, for the foreseeable future as, as long as we're kind of staying under the guidelines and trying to keep us as safe as we can and we'd love to have you join us but we also understand if uh, if there are some concerns and we don't want you to feel like you have to be there, but we would love to have you join us uh, whenever you feel comfortable doing that. But for the time being, we are certainly glad that you've joined us to worship with us online uh, this morning and, and glad to be able to worship together. Yeah, I heard a story about a preacher and his wife who wanted to go out on a date, go out to dinner and a movie. And so they called the babysitter to come over and watch their, their young daughter. And so later on that night, the babysitter's putting the young daughter to bed when the you know, preacher and his wife are still out um, having a date, having a break, you know. And so they're, the babysitter's putting the young daughter to bed, and the young daughter says to her, she says, can we, can we say our prayers? And, and the babysitter said, absolutely, we can say our prayers. What would you like for me to pray for? And the little girl said, well, I want you to pray for me because I don't think I want to go to church tomorrow. And the babysitter said, well, why not? What's wrong? Why, why don't you want to go to church? And, and the little girl said, well... It's the sermons. My dad's sermons are just too long and I don't understand them. And the babysitter thought for a second because she went to the same church that the, the, the preacher preached at. And, and she said, well, I know your dad and he's a good preacher. Maybe we just need to ask God to help you understand the sermons better. And, and the little girl thought for a second. She said, maybe, but I don't think God understands them either. <laughs> Hopefully my daughter, I don't think she's ever said that, but... You know, it's kind of a funny little example, but the reality is that sometimes just that, like that little girl, we have a tendency to put God in the same image that, that we are and put the same um, proclivities and, and same thought processes on, on God that, that we have on ourselves, even the same limitations that we have, what he understands and, and what he doesn't and how he works and how he doesn't work. And certainly that's maybe true a little bit more of little kids, but we as adults still can do the same thing. And truth be told, far too often we, we tend to place God, we have this tendency to place God in a box, to place others even in a box, even to place ourselves in a box at times when it comes to the, the way things happen and how things should work and how things are supposed to go. Well, we are in the midst of a series called Going Viral in which we're journeying through the book of Acts, and we're examining what it looks like when the message of Jesus goes viral. And over the last couple of weeks, several weeks actually, we've seen how the message of Jesus has gone viral in, those, in that early church beyond Jerusalem and into uh, unlikely places, at least in the beginning for some Jews, into Judea and in Samaria, into Samaria, and even into some of the most unlikely and unexpected people, people like Saul, who would later be known as Paul. And along the way, over and over, we've seen God have to work through his own people and, and work them through their own prejudices and walls and boxes to embrace what he's already doing in the world around them. And this story that we come to today is really no different from that because it also involves those same prejudices and walls and boxes, the boxes that we sometimes place God in, the boxes that we sometimes place others in, and even the boxes that we sometimes place ourselves in at times. And so let's pick up the story in Acts chapter 10, 
starting in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. So just to give you a little background here of what's going on, Cornelius lived in a place called Caesarea. It was, uh, and still is, a, a, a seaside town on the Mediterranean shore about 70 miles away from Jerusalem. And, and King Herod, who was the king who was ruling at the time Jesus was born, had built um, this city, Caesarea, in honor of the Caesar of Rome, who was Caesar at the time when he built the city. And it was really it was a showpiece for Roman art and culture and the way that Romans lived, almost to say, here's the better life. Here's what Rome has to offer. And at the center of Caesarea was a temple to Caesar himself, basically to signify and to say, uh, and, and a place of worship, that uh, to say that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is, is God, and he is worthy of our worship. Now, the Jews had disdain for all things Roman, but they in particularly, they in particular did not like Caesarea. They couldn't stand the place, much like U of M fans in Columbus or state fans in Ann Arbor. They, they just did not like Romans and they did not like Caesarea and everything it stood for. And so then you have Cornelius because he, he's intriguing because although he is living in Caesarea and he is a, a Roman centurion, he's got 100 soldiers under his command, Apparently, though, this Roman commander has been rubbed off on by some Jews living there in Caesarea because he is described as being devout toward the God of the Jews. He's God-fearing, and Luke says that he's praying to God at three in the afternoon, and that's significant because three in the afternoon, that was one of the Jewish times of prayer, which again points to how devout he was as a God-fearing man. And even more than that, he's generous to the community. He's generous to the poor in that community. And check this out. God notices. In fact, we find out through the vision that Cornelius has that God considers Cornelius' gifts to the poor as an offering to God. It's an offering of worship to God. God is blessed by the devotion of Cornelius in his prayers and in his giving to the poor. And so I, I want to underscore, I don't want us to miss this fact. Cornelius is a good man. He may not be a Jew, but he is a good man. He's God-fearing, he's prayerful, he's generous. But there's something else that Cornelius needs and involves a man named Peter. Now, Peter is staying in a town called Joppa. Joppa is about 30 miles away from Caesarea. And he's staying with a guy who apparently loves to tan, Simon the Tanner, who coincidentally happens to live, of course he does, by the sea and on the beach. Some of you will get that a little bit later. Maybe some of you do and you just don't think it's that funny. But uh, Peter is staying at this particular house and the angel says to Cornelius in the vision, Cornelius, you need to send men 
to Joppa, 30 miles away, 60 miles round trip, so a decent trip. You need to send people to Joppa, men to Joppa, and go get Peter and bring him back to you. And so again, not, not a short trip. This is not a, a trip around the corner. This is a decent trip. Although the truth is, it's going to be an even longer journey for Peter. Because even though Peter worships God and he believes in Jesus, he's given his life to Jesus, this Jesus who he knows has claimed to be for all, he came for all, and yet Peter is not quite sold, not, re not quite ready to embrace the idea that Jesus truly did come for all. Because in Peter's mind, God still has his favorites. And for Peter, and, and for most of the Jews for that matter, there was a huge gulf between the Jews and non-Jews or Gentiles. In fact, for the most part, Jews wouldn't even associate with Gentiles because they considered them to be unclean. And now Peter is going to be requested to come to, of all places, Caesarea, a, a city with a temple to Caesar, and of all things, to go inside the house of a Gentile. And not only does Peter have a personal theology that would make him resistant to this, but, but beyond that, Peter himself is, is pretty stubborn. <laughs> Peter's, a, Peter's a pretty stubborn guy, and, and when he has his mind set on things, it's really hard to sway him. And so God, God's going to have to prepare Peter for the person that Peter is prepared for. Let's read on in verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while that meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and saw something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It, continued all, it contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not. Lord, Peter replied, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. And this happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. And so just get the scene. Peter's up on the rooftop around lunchtime and he's having, spending some time in prayer because that's a normal time of prayer and he gets hungry. And so he puts in his order and while they're preparing his meal, he falls into a trance. I don't know if it was a hunger trance, but obviously God had, had, had made it possible for him to fall into this trance. And in the midst of this trance, he has a vision. It's kind of a strange vision. It's a vision of this large sheet with all these kinds of animals on it. And all the animals are unclean animals. In other words, they're, they're all animals that God ex had explicitly told his people in the Old Testament not to eat. It's black and white in scripture. God gave them a command not to eat these particular animals. And now Peter is having this vision of this image of this sheet unfurling from heaven and the same unclean animals are on the sheet. And then the voice says to Peter, I want you to kill and I want you to eat. By the way, this is a hunter's favorite passage, kill and eat. But this voice is telling Peter to do exactly something that God has explicitly forbidden his people in the Old Testament to do. And Peter says, no way, Lord. I, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean, and I'm not about to start now. And the Lord says, don't call something impure that I have made clean. This exchange between Peter and God happens three times. God has to repeat himself three times 
to Peter, although I'm sure if you're like me, God's never had to repeat a lesson to you either, right? And look, the issue isn't that Peter is having a hard time getting his mind around the fact that he can now have a ham sandwich, right? It, that, that isn't the issue. Although the next time you eat bacon, I, I do hope you think of grace, but we'll save that for another time. But the issue, the, the, the vision really isn't about food. The vision is about Peter and people, Cornelius, Gentiles. And the issue is this, who gets to decide who is clean and who's not clean? Peter or God? And who is it that God is making clean? Peter just doesn't quite get it yet, though. Continue in verse 17. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about the vision, so he's still, he's still trying to wrap his mind around all of this, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived at Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And as Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And so picture the scene. Cornelius has gathered together all of his close friends uh, and all of his relatives, all of the people that are, that are near and dear to him in his life, and he's rounded them all up, brought them to his house to hear what Peter has to say. And listen to how Peter starts the conversation. Verse 28, he said to them, Peter said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. <laughs> How's that for an introduction? You're well aware, or if you're not, I'm making you aware that it's against the law for me to be here right now. It's against my law. It's against my religion to be here right now. Apparently, Peter never read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. He never read his book or went to any of his conferences. But Peter does continue. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objections, to which I would say, well... Maybe a little bit of an objection. May I ask, Peter said, may I ask why you sent me? And so then Cornelius explains to Peter how God came to him in a vision and how God instructed him to go get this guy named Peter. Go to Joppa, go get this guy named Peter, bring him back to you. And then Cornelius says, and now I've got my family, I've got my friends, I've got everybody that I love, I've got them here in this house, and we're all ready to listen to what God has commanded you to tell us. Verse 34, then Peter began to speak. I now realize, it's starting to hit him, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. And then Peter proceeds to share with Cornelius and with all those there in his household the message of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins that's found in him. He begins to preach the gospel to Cornelius and all who are there. But then, right in the middle of the sermon, check this out, verse 44. 
while Peter was still speaking these words, so while he's still talking, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, the Jewish Christians, who had come with Peter, were astonished, obviously, that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out, on even, out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And so get this, they're hearing this Roman centurion, these Jews, mind you, are hearing this Roman centurion, this Gentile, and all his Gentile house and family speaking in tongues. Sound familiar? Takes us back to Acts chapter 2 with Peter and the other believers when they were speaking in tongues. And, and for Peter and these other Jewish believers who are hearing this and seeing this, it's like, whoa, th these guys, they've got the same thing we do. Then Peter said, verse 47, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter, Peter to stay with them for a few days. It really is such an incredible moment because, I mean, get this. God is so eager to save Cornelius and to save Cornelius' household that he doesn't even let Peter finish the, the sermon. He doesn't even let Peter give the invitation, right, and sing, stand and sing and sing the, sing the invitation song. He doesn't wait for Peter to get to the end. The Spirit just comes on them. And for the second time in the story, God does something completely unexpected. Now, I don't want to stop right here for just a second. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I do want to address something that, uh, that, that comes up when people read this story. In Acts chapter 2, when, when Peter at Pentecost, when Peter preaches the message of Jesus and he's preaching to all those who were present or around Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified, and he says to them, you crucified Jesus, you, you messed up royally. And they say, well, what do we do? What, you know, how do we respond to this? And Peter says, you need to repent. You need to change your, your heart and your mind about Jesus and who he is. And you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, as we read and studied a few weeks ago, 3,000 people make that decision to follow Jesus, to give their lives to Jesus, to be baptized for the forgiveness of their, sin, of their sins. And then they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But here in Acts chapter 10, the Spirit comes on them before they're baptized. In fact, even before they seemingly repent or give a confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and confess their belief in Him. So the question is, well, why is that? Well, again, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but let me just simply say, my belief is that this is the only way. God doing this, God did this for a specific purpose for Peter. It's as much to teach a lesson to Peter it is, as it is to show what God is doing through the Gentiles. This is the only way that Peter and the other Jewish believers would have allowed them to be baptized in the first place. I mean, Peter says as much himself when he says, surely no one can stand in the way of them being baptized now, now that I've seen what I've seen. Up until this moment, Peter and the other Jewish believers would have stood in the way of them believing and being, well, they could have believed, but them being baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. But now he says they've received the same Holy Spirit just as we have. And the reason he said it that way is because up until a few days ago, he wouldn't have been caught dead in the water with these guys. And this is a huge moment. The Gentiles, the non-Jews, the uncircumcised, the Spirit of God comes upon them 
and takes residence upon them. That means that the Gentiles can have the same kind of relationship that that God has with the Jews. That the the Spirit of Jesus longs to save them and, and, and to dwell in them and in their lives just as he did among the Jews. Jesus is making them clean too. And so far be it from Peter or anybody else for that matter to stand in the way. So what do we take from this story of Peter and pigs in a blanket and the spirit coming to Cornelius's house? Well, let me just give you three takeaways today. And the first is this. When it comes to going viral, this story reminds us that the gospel is for all, but it's also necessary for all. You see, the gospel is for all, but it's also necessary for all. Go back to the very beginning of the story. Cornelius prays to God and he's generous to the poor and this honors God and God sees it as worship, but there's still something lacking in Cornelius' life. He had yet to hear and embrace the good news about Jesus. And it's God in a vision who tells Cornelius, you need to send your servants down to Joppa and you need to go get this guy named Peter and you need to bring him back here because there's something Peter has to tell you that you need to hear. Listen to me very closely. Cornelius' devotion in prayer and his generosity to the poor and his fearing of God and his devoutness and his commitment to God, that honored God. God saw that as worship. But those things could not cover his sin. Those things weren't enough to pay the penalty for his sin. And I think this is a message that that we need to hear in our culture, in our American culture, in the American church. Because we all know people in our lives and in our world who are highly moral people. In fact, many of us would probably say we know a lot of moral moral people who are more moral than, than a lot of the Christians that we know. People who are more compassionate than we are. People who are more uh, thoughtful than we are. People who are more giving and generous than we are, just like Cornelius. And you know what? God can be honored by that. God can be blessed by the lives that they live, but they still need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. God didn't say, well, you know, Cornelius, he's doing well. I mean, he's praying. He's doing the right things. He's He's given to the poor. He's generous. You know what? I think we just need to leave Cornelius alone. God didn't say that. God sent him a vision, told him to send some men down to Joppa, 60-mile round trip, go get this dude named Peter, bring him back. And God works supernaturally in Peter's life to prepare him to go to Cornelius. Why? Because as good of a man as Cornelius was, he still needed to hear the good news about Jesus and the forgiveness of sins that only comes through him. As good of a man as he was, he still needed to hear that. And listen to me very closely. You have never met a person who doesn't need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins. You've never met a person, and you will never meet a person who doesn't need to hear the message. No matter how generous they are, no matter how thoughtful they are, no matter how moral they are, no matter how prayerful they are, you've never met a person who doesn't need to hear it. That's why not only is the gospel for all, but it's also necessary for all. Here's the second thing. When it comes to going viral, this story reminds us that Jesus works on us while he's working through us. And Peter's 
probably the best example of this in the New Testament, if not the entire Bible. Peter is one of the first disciples called by Jesus. He's with Jesus from the very beginning, and yet there is so much growth that still needs to happen in Peter's life. You know, it's interesting. There are more stories, both for good and for bad, uh, in, in the New Testament about Peter and his transformation and his growth than pretty much everybody else in the New Testament. I mean, you just, just pick up the Bible and read through Acts and read through Peter's life, read through the Gospels and read through all the stories about Peter for better or for worse. I mean, I kind of feel bad for him. It's like there's all this garbage about Peter. Peter gets picked on. Everybody's reading his files. And don't mistake me, there are a lot of good moments too, but there's also some, some bad moments in Peter's life. But in every one of those stories... Peter experiences another level and another level, to Peter's credit, and another level of transformation when it comes to his attitudes and his behaviors and his thinking. And the whole time, while Jesus is working through Peter to touch the lives of others, Jesus is still working on Peter. You see, just because Jesus uses you doesn't mean that you've arrived. He can use you or he, he, can use, he can work through you while he's still working on you. We, we all ought to have this big construction sign across our foreheads that says God at work, just to remind people, and probably to remind us every time we look in the mirror, that even though God may be working through us, there's still a lot of work that he needs to do on us. And just because he's working through you doesn't mean he stopped working on you. And perhaps... Maybe that's one of the reasons why all the skeletons in Peter's closet are drug out for everybody to see because all of us have skeletons too. And we need to be reminded that just because God is working through us doesn't mean that he's done working on us. You know, I was talking with someone the other day about the importance of praying for people in our lives who don't know Jesus. And that is of utmost importance to be for us to be in prayer about the people in our lives and in our world who don't yet know our Lord and our Savior. But you know who else we ought to be praying for? We ought to be praying for all of us who do know Jesus, and yet we've still got a lot of areas in our lives where we don't live and we don't love like Jesus. We've still got a lot of room for God to work on us. Peter knows that story as well. And then finally, I think we learn from this story in Acts chapter 10 that the gospel of Jesus going viral often has something to do with us come to, coming to the understanding that God is bigger than the box. Our God is bigger than the box. You know, so much of this story is about Jesus blowing out the boxes that Peter had others in and even Jesus blowing out the boxes that Peter had Jesus in. Peter has some preconceived notions about how God works and who God works in and through and even who God desires to save. And Peter has Jesus in this nice little box. And I wonder, in fact, I do more than wonder. I think I know that sometimes we do the same thing. We try to fit Jesus into this nice little box of how he works and who he works in and who he works through. And and look, some of those boxes God gives us himself. I mean, after all, scripture in, in many ways it is a box. It provides a box. It's a way of God trying to relate to us as human beings to say, here's what I'm like, and, and here's what it likes, looks like to live in my image and to live out this call that I've put on, on your life. And certainly scripture paints a, 
an incredible box of who God is and how he works and what he desires for our lives. And, and that's obviously a good thing. And in no way do, do I want to paint this picture that, that scripture is less than or, or to diminish or downplay the role and the importance of scripture. So please do not hear what I'm not saying. But God is bigger than our finite understanding of Scripture. God, if God could explain who he is in Scripture, then, then we would be able to understand him. And, and God is beyond our understanding. God is beyond anything that we can comprehend or wrap our minds around. I'm not downplaying Scripture, but God is bigger than our finite understanding of Scripture. I love what A.W. Tozer says, the God who fits into our nice little boxes isn't the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why stories like this are probably so hard for us to get our minds around. Because we all want a system. We all want a paradigm. We all want a box for God to fit in to make us feel better. But you know what? God doesn't write systematic theology. People do. And every now and then, God will work outside the box just to keep us honest. And think about it. For thousands of years, the Jews had viewed these foods as unclean and certain people as unclean. That's the box that Peter had. And don't get me wrong. I mean, God's the one who, who had, you know, he's the one who brought it into being. So it's not like they just made it up. God is the one who brought it into being. And it, it served a purpose for a season a time in the Old Testament, but God was up to something far bigger than the box that Peter had him in of how God worked and how he moved and who God is. That box wasn't the be-all, end-all. It simply played a role in the story of Jesus becoming Lord and Savior of all, Gentiles included. After all, if it wasn't for God working outside the box, particularly the box that Peter had him in, you and I as Gentiles, we're not Jews, we're Gentiles. You and I would be lost and dead in our sins and on the outside looking in to the salvation of God. So thank God for him working outside the box. Speaking of boxes, I think it's worth remembering the closing words of Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter seven, and we'll close with this. And he said this to the religious leaders who were uh, really concerned about God operating inside their boxes. He said this, the most high doesn't live in houses built by human hands. He's talking about a temple here. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or well, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? In essence, Stephen is saying, how big of a box can you build? that you can fit God in it. And the point is you can't build a box that big. By the way, isn't that what the resurrection of Jesus is all about? I mean, they put him in that grave, they put him in that tomb and that was the best box they had. And when he came walking out of that tomb, it was in essence Jesus saying, if you're gonna try to contain me, you're gonna need a bigger box. And the truth is there isn't a box that big because our God is bigger than the box.